Welcome to Fentrepreneur, our last episode of the year 2023 with Eli and Dave. And for this episode, we're not going to have a guest. We're just going to go into a year in review, what was significant to us in our professional and personal journeys this year. Eli works exclusively on the Tabit side of the business, where the B2B BNPL market continues to evolve at a rapid pace. So there's some market commentary I'm sure you'll provide as well as talk people through what it is we got through this year and what might be coming up next. Then I can kind of do the same for small business lending more broadly and merchant growth. So with all that said, Eli, why don't I pass it to you first to talk about, you know, this new startup of ours, Tabit, and where we're at with it. Yeah. So let's take a step back and just discuss a little bit, you know, how we came to Tabit again. I know we've talked about it in past episodes, but I assume some people, you know, wrongfully have not listened to every single one of our episodes. So just in case they missed it, I'll do a little recap. So a couple of years back, Dave, obviously you and I connected and started talking about, you know, what was happening in the business to consumer space when it came to the buy now, pay later companies, such as Paybright, The Firm, uh, Sezzle, Afterpay, these kind of companies. And there was an incredible conversion in that space. The companies or consumers were really buying in and starting to use this and uh, retailers were maximizing their sales, were benefiting from it. And so we started looking at, you know, the business to business side. And one of the things that I remember you mentioning at the beginning is what happens in the consumer space tends to happen in small business, right? As opposed to uh, the commercial lending side. So it was a bit of a seamless transition into, well, how can we make this available to the B2B space? And so one thing led to another, and we dove into building this out, basically leveraging merchant growth last almost 15 years of underwriting and funding in Canada, and decided to build out what we know today as Tabit, which is our B2B buy now, pay later solution. And so the idea behind that was to work with retailers and distributors, like wholesalers, plug in with them and offer our financing at the point of sale. And so, you know, this year was an exciting year for us, right? We have some of our largest clients that went live. We went live with a lot of our different plugins, you know, the Shopify, WooCommerce, BigCommerce, Salesforce Commerce Cloud, Magento, which made it so that any client that is using one of those platforms can just plug us in, right? They're not having to do any any development, any backend work to integrate us. They basically plug us in, we provide them with activation keys and they go live. And so it's been really actually cool to see how much of a fit there is for these sellers, how excited they are about it. And we're obviously still in early stages of it, but yeah, so far so good. It's been an exciting year, I think. What have we learned from this year? What assumptions proved incorrect, perhaps, or mm-hmm. learnings that resulted in us changing a little bit what our roadmap is? Yeah, so we were and still are very bullish on the B2B e-commerce side, right? You know, that e-commerce in the B2B space is going to be just as big and if not bigger than the consumer side. I still believe in that. However, I do think it's still a little bit earlier than we assume, number one. And number two, there's actually some significant differences between business-to-business transactions being done online versus business-to-business transactions being done offline. And obviously, some people might say, well, obviously, right? But it's not that obvious. And a lot of companies could sell online up to you know $500,000 or a million dollars. There are uh, studies that were done that show that there's actually a decent amount of comfort for buyers to buy from their wholesalers, these large amounts. But what it turns out is, you know, we found that online 
there's this more smaller transactions being purchased more frequently and offline remains the you know the bigger heavy equipment larger transactions being done less frequently so we've reprioritized i think our channels right as opposed to going all in only on e-commerce we're really diversifying tabit so that we can really meet the client where they are that meaning e-commerce in-store telesales so on and so forth i also think you know not to point fingers but maybe Canada to blame a little bit and that we're probably further behind in our B2B e-commerce compared to other countries. Yeah, I think so. It tends to be the case that we lag on things when it comes to finance or payments or, or the internet and e-commerce. Yeah. We catch up, right? So we know where the puck's headed. Yeah, I think that we're still very bullish on the B2B e-commerce. Companies are learning more and more about the buyer behaviors and that your business buyers are also consumers and they're used to buying things a certain way. And you know, the younger generations starting to expect these online purchases. So I think it's coming. I think it's still going to be massive. But I think it makes sense that if you're going to offer a service like this, that you offer it where the clients are going to be, especially today. And that's why we we really put some focus on going omni-channel. And the other thing I think was recognizing just how important a top-of-funnel pre-qualification widget is to the product too, right? And obviously, yeah. we just released our basic MVP, which was Tabit as a payment option at checkout once you've built up a cart in an e-commerce environment. But just talk through how we realized how big of an opportunity that prequal is when we saw how many people were clicking to learn more on some of these websites and stuff. And what we think will happen to you know, our volumes as we release that pre-qualification widget. Yeah. So what's the difference between prequal and what we were first doing? We have what we call transactional approvals. Like you said, companies would... If they're selecting to buy with Tabit, they had to be at a checkout where we had a specific cart total. We're underwriting against that specific total and basically yes or no. Are you approved for this or are you not? And that was pretty straightforward. What we've shifted to, and I think it's more aligned with other buy now, pay later providers in the consumer space where they see the most conversion is providing a pre-qualification feature. So if a buyer is on the website of one of our wholesalers and says, I want to use financing. Well, they can now pre-qualify for the financing. So they know exactly how much they qualify for before shopping. Obviously, that impacts buying behavior. The client knows as opposed to hoping that they're covered, right? That they qualify. It's a much better experience and it really pushes conversion. So we're excited about that. That element, I think, is probably the most important thing we did this year. And then going into next year, definitely the omni-channel side. Totally. But one of the things we really wanted to see is are our assumptions correct, right? Our sellers really going to want to use this. And I've been just so thrilled to see how once you get someone on the phone and you tell them about what we're doing, it's less of a sale and more of an information. People are bought in. They see the value of it. I think this is something that's been missing in the B2B space for a long time. Again, as always, I'm not promoting it for other people to join and start competing with us, but Personally, I'm excited about the reaction that we've got from the market. It's still new in the market for from a buyer standpoint. B2B buy now, pay later, whether it's in Canada or international, is something that people don't aren't aware of as much as they are in the consumer space. But I think it will, you know, the adoption will be great over the next coming years. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you um, on the one hand just really validated how excellent the demand environment is for this, while tongue in cheek, like wanting to discourage competition as as a um, astute capitalist would but i think another point to make is just how hard it is to build a payment option functionality to properly underwrite business credit which is much more complicated than consumer credit up to higher approval amounts 
handle partial refunds and voids and all the different functions that you need to handle as a payment solution, have that work reliably, have that connect into all these plugins. Like that was, we had a significant amount of development resources building this and it took much longer than we expected. So, you know, that's, I'd say the biggest barrier to entry to getting out there. It's like, it's not something that's easy to build an MVP for. You have to build a ton of infrastructure before you have anything that works at any level. Yeah. But, you know, difficult things are often the things that are, that are most worth, worthwhile. But I feel really lucky that we're building this today and, and we can and we can afford to. You know, we're basically incubating a startup in, inside of a mature business that's profitable and has the resources to build this. I think if I was, you know, just starting out like I was 14 years ago and the very first thing I was going to do to try and start generating revenue and start building a business around was Tabit. That would be a daunting, you know, position to be in uh, yeah. as like a startup. Like it's a pretty big build, which is why I started with a much more incremental, simple business where I just started making loans to small businesses, mostly manually using a few checklists and walking checks to bank branches physically. So it's great that we can work on something more complex and that I think can really drive enterprise value for the business and a ton of value to the marketplace and save people a lot of time and create a lot of new good credit at the point of sale with suppliers. But even within merchant growth and what previously was, you know, traditional lending or whatever, you know, this year, you guys on the merchant growth side, I say you guys, obviously we're, we're all part of the same team and company, but on the merchant growth core side of the business, right? With financing we've been doing for the last 15 years or so, there was actually a lot of tech going into it this year. So I feel like there was exposure to tech, not just from building Tavit, but building the tech that we did for SIBA. How was that experience for you this year? Was that probably the biggest tech build that you've had to do over the last 15 years of running the company? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And you know, I made it sound like such a simple, easy, and you can do this business very manually. The, the truth is, and it was actually Jason Mullins who said this on our podcast with him, yeah, I can't remember what episode number that was, but where he said that, you know, in the, in the, in the lending business, the barriers to entry are actually low because anyone can kind of just start lending money out of their garage. But the mm-hmm. barriers to success are really high to actually make it work, make the numbers work and scale it up and scale it up profitably. is That's very difficult. It, it does increasingly require a ton of technology to do that well, a ton of sophistication around risk management, lots of automation that borrower experience has to be extremely seamless or else you're going to lose the competitors or only get the most marginal borrowers who are you know, still looking for credit after getting declined everywhere else. So it's by no means is it easy to succeed. You know, I think the fact that you know, we're now 14, 15 years and we're kind of over that hump and we're a market leader. And you know, that's not to say that we can just pat ourselves in the back and get complacent. Like We have to continue to defend our business vigorously and continue to work hard at, at improving which we do and which we did this year, right? To your point about technology investment. So, you know, we invest in Tabit from a technology perspective, but we also invested in what we've always done, which is folks coming to us wanting business loans and serving them as best we can. I want to spend a moment on SIBA, which you brought up. That's the Canada Emergency Business Account. By the time this episode comes up, some pretty big news is going to come out with respect to what we're doing there. So the Canada Emergency Business Account was a COVID program to support small businesses that the federal government put together. And what it did is it gave interest-free $40,000 or $60,000 loans to any small business that had a certain payroll range. That payroll range was revised a few times. In the end, it was $20,000 to $1.5 million of annual payroll in the most recent year. 
And if you were that size business, you could get this loan. It was as simple as that. And so out of 1.2 million total companies in Canada, that's companies of all sizes, 900,000 companies ended up getting SIBO loans, which is just incredible. It's just wow. a huge number. Yeah, pretty much every business. Here's this program. It's interest-free. And this, the part I haven't mentioned yet is that if you pay it off by a certain date, which they call the forgiveness deadline, then you get a bunch of the loan forgiven. If you had a $60,000 SIBA, you make a $40,000 payment and they forgive the remaining 20. If you had a $40,000 SIBA, you make a payment of 30,000 and they wipe out the remaining 10. So not only was it interest-free for a number of years, you actually got to literally get free money out of it as well. And if you miss that forgiveness deadline, you owe the full amount plus interest and then there's a bullet in a few years. So there's the create in the program by design, you know, very big incentive to try and get the government's money back, you know, when they can. Uh, they knew this was going to be a very expensive program. Lots of people would take it up. They wanted a mechanism with which they would get a high level of repayment pretty quickly. And so that deadline's now around the corner. And it's pretty um, logic follows that there is a big opportunity to help businesses get that capital. So, you know, most businesses are going to have the, the thirty or 40000 they need to clear out their SIBA balance perhaps already in cash or they made sure they planned for it. And then there's going to be a group of businesses that, you know, COVID started years ago. Some of those businesses aren't around today. Those SIBAs are never coming back. But in between, there's a segment of businesses that, you know, $40,000 to make that in one payment in January just might not be the right timing for them. Might leave them a little low in working capital. Might not be the best use of cash, even though they understand the big forgiveness. So you know, for those businesses, they run viable companies that are a going concern that generate revenue that can qualify for credit. It makes a ton of sense to get refinancing to get that twenty grand for free from the government. It's an incredible opportunity, and so you know we so mobilize in a big way to provide that. So on that, there's a lot of people that would say. So let me get this straight: those companies that have had this loan for three years and maybe are not in a position to pay this back. Who in their right mind would be lending to these companies? You know, like it isn't that a super high risk? I mean, you know, like obviously that's people's first reaction. Why is it something that's really attractive to you and obviously to emerging growth as a whole? How do you see the opportunity? Yeah. So I would say a couple of things. One is that, you know, of course you have to be careful and you have to be selective when you're underwriting business credit. I mean, that applies in any environment or applies in our regular everyday business, as you can imagine. We advertise online, we get loan applications from all sorts of different referral partners and broker partners, and they vary in quality. And and so businesses that are really kind of like last kind of grasp, just trying to stay afloat for the next few months and but not without a clear picture as to how they're going to get to a more stable footing. Like those types of companies, our underwriting models are really good at detecting those distress mm-hmm. factors. Our merchant score model is highly sophisticated. It can pick up trends. It can pick up all sorts of different signals and delineate risk across the spectrum. And it does that really well. And so we're going to apply that understanding to how we adjudicate SIBA refinance applicants. Now, you know, just because a 40K payment is a bit of a stretch to make for certain businesses, doesn't mean they're bad businesses. Like businesses are seasonal. Like in Canada, a lot of businesses are slow in the wintertime. Just might be really crappy timing to drain 40K out of the account at that time. Maybe something else came up. They had an unexpected expense in the fall. And so now they're caught just a little bit flat, right? To come mm-hmm. up to 40, right? Just because a business has a short-term liquidity challenge does not mean it's a bad business, does not mean it's not a sustainable business at, at all, right? So there's plenty of them. In the case of any SIBA refinance agreement, whether it's with us, our competitors, or other financial institutions, you know, it's going to be 
a well-worded commercially market business loan agreement that's going to include uh, you know certain protections for the lender that you know any borrower needs to take seriously and frankly those are going to be you know more stringent than what the government SIBA program is and so a business owner who is very unsure whether their business is going to survive over the next few years it's unlikely that they are going to want to take a refinance loan like a SIBA refinance loan because right. they can just bankrupt their company in a few years and never pay back their SIBA or they can take a SIBA refinance loan, but if they fail to pay that back, they're in a more difficult position than they would be just doing a simple bankruptcy um, uh, with their government obligation down the road. I certainly don't encourage anyone to do any of that. I mean, they're real obligations and we should all be working hard to make our business successful and, and so on. But the point is there's a natural self-selection for better yeah. credits to come to lenders like us to do their SIBA refinance loan. You're coming to us because you're confident in your business. You know you're just a little short cash to make this payment. And you know that entering into a new loan and paying that loan off and saving the 20 grand from the government forgiveness is the right move. And so you make that move. And so for that reason as well, we're confident we're going to see a really nice like funnel of confident business owners that just see a great opportunity to save money from the government in this program. Hey, there was a lot of effort this year, Dave, from the small business organizations that were lobbying to have this push back a year or two years or whatever it was. They really wanted to push this back. What was your position on that? Why did you think that, hey, it's probably not a best day if we just keep pushing this deadline back? Yeah, I got a few points for that. So what the government ended up doing under that pressure, they did end up making some changes. So the main change they made was that the ultimate final bullet maturity payment is in 2026 instead of 2025. So they did move that payment by a year. And what that means is if you're a business that can't quite make that forgiveness deadline payment today, you have considerably more time at a reasonable interest rate to sit and wait and try and get there. And the, the argument of the CFIB was that businesses just got more time, they would get back on their feet more, they would build up a buffer, save up money and, and be in a better position to, to pay their SIBA back. Well, this does exactly that. It gives them that more time. Again, if you can afford and you can qualify for SIBA refinancing today to lock in the forgiveness, you should. But there is also going to be some businesses that can't do that today, but they may be able to improve their prospects over the next few years and make it to that bullet payment in the end. I'm not going to say that that's easy to do, but some will be able to pull that off. But the other point that the CFAB certainly didn't highlight in their lobbying is that like inflation has been a real, real problem for the country, yeah. for businesses, for consumers. And it's... Uh, contributed to the housing affordability crisis. I mean, it's a really big problem. And taking some dollars out of circulation, out of the system, is the most targeted way to fight inflation outside of interest rate increases, right? So it's a great opportunity to do that. If you push the deadline out further, it's ultimately going to cost everyone, including businesses who also suffer from inflation, right? So there's no free lunch. And so from an inflation fighting standpoint, really good move to keep the deadline where it is. Lastly, there is an argument made by CFIB, which is that Ottawa will receive more in total SIBA repayments if they move the deadline out further to give people more time. And that's an interesting one because anybody in the business of credit knows that there is a fundamental mistake in the logic of that statement. And that is whenever you have a portfolio of loans out there, the more you increase your term on those loans, the more your losses go up. Because on a lifetime basis on the, that entire cohort, 
And that's because every year there is a certain failure rate. Every year, certain businesses go out of business. Business models become no longer sustainable and they have to do that. That's how the system works. And then what happens is a rebirth where new businesses are created to take advantage of new trends and what might be happening in the marketplace. And so you have this natural you know, death and rebirth. And it happens every year and a certain percentage of businesses will fail as part of that every single year. And so you have this group of businesses that got the SIBA loans. Every year, some percentage of them are going to struggle. And new businesses are going to get created in their wake, but the new businesses don't owe the SIBA loans. And yeah. It's the old ones. It's, the, it's, it's only the initial businesses that got the SIBA loans that, that owe the SIBA loans. So the longer you wait, the more you're letting you know some businesses in that SIBA cohort churn out to be replaced by new businesses that don't owe, don't owe SIBA. So the longer you wait, the less SIBA you get back. There's no question about that. And that was that argument that just extend it and you'll get more money back is just fundamentally flawed on the on behalf of CFIB. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and there's probably also a component of all those researchers are still out basically as a lifeline to some companies, whereas these companies that you call like the rebirth or the new companies may not have access to support that they may have if those resources were back at the government, if they were able to reissue those funds, if they're still waiting on a ton of money to come back in, right? And so I wonder if there's also that component where new businesses get less support. But yeah, SIBA has been in, obviously for us, an all-consuming thing. So to bring it back to the tech side of it, what was that like this year? What was the build for? How did we prepare for SIBA? Yeah, so we knew that if we are right, that even you know a small percentage of the overall SIBA program borrowers are in that camp of needing a little bit of help to get at that government forgiveness but have going concern businesses that qualify for financing. Whatever that percentage is, our estimate is that it's high enough to create a very meaningful one-time opportunity Mm -hmm. and to really support small businesses and take advantage of the way the government designed this whole thing. And so knowing that, and also knowing that a lot of that demand is going to be very back-end weighted right as that deadline approaches, because businesses are going to be sussing out their options and I put myself in this camp too. We all kind of procrastinate a little bit with there's something that we don't need to act on. And there's it's interest-free until that forgiveness deadline. So there really is no reason to execute a refinancing and you know before that date. And so we knew that there would be a lot of demand and we knew it would be bunched towards the end. Yeah. And in that environment, we wanted to still, you know, process as much of these as we possibly could and help as many of these businesses as we possibly could. So what we did was we built an end-to-end. A fully automated application experience specifically for refinancing your SIBA loan. So that involves entering some basic business and personal information, digitally connecting bank transaction data, getting an offer in real time as our merchant score model adjudicates your credit, selecting an offer, verifying your identity through a selfie ID platform, digitally signing the funding agreements and having the funds routed either to your account to make the SIBA payment or even directly to pay off your SIBA, depending on which financial institution you're in, all in one experience. And so mm-hmm. that was a pretty big build. It was a much more you know, seamless application experience than anything else we've built to date. So that experience that we built is kind of like our North Star now in the business for where we want to take our business generally. And as we see a flood of applicants, we won't necessarily have to you know, deploy a lot of 
labor hours in terms of sales or adjudication to get those through. Some applicants are going to get kicked out in the manual review. That's part of how the system's designed. Yeah. But if a decent portion can be handled fully automated through the flow, then we'll be able to process a lot of SIBA in a short period of time. So that's what we've built around. And you know, we had a hard deadline on it and it was an ambitious build. So we grinded through it. And you know, as a result, we have some really cool tech we can deploy in other ways too in the years to come. So yeah, really excited about what we're going to do with SIBA and generally in the business in the next few years. Yeah, it's interesting to see like, you know, SIBA or with Tabit's application, it looks very simple, right? <laughs> you enter your personal information, your business information, connect your bank account, we spit out a decision. Super simple. But stuff that goes on in the background, that like was humbling for me to be <laughs> part of the, the tech side of it, right? Because you go in and be like, how complicated could it be? But there's so many things happening in the back end to make that. And so really, really... Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. there's so many different data sources you're tapping into. So you have to make a call. You have to wait for the response from that call. You yeah. have to take all this information and run different things. If, if something like errors in a certain way, you have to handle it in a certain way. There's so many different exceptions. like. It is a serious amount of crap going on in the back end, all very quickly, all quite unnoticeable to the person actually going through the experience, which is the magic of it. But yeah, so the last part of completing this te- this preparation for SIBO was making sure that if we were right on our assumptions on the opportunity size, that we were ready for from the funding standpoint. So access to funds and being able to fund all these loans. So that's taken up the majority of your year this year. So tell me a little bit about how that was. What did you learn along the way? Yeah, happy to tell that story. And, and you're absolutely right. Like, we just looked at this thing. We thought, hey, this could be really big. We don't exactly know how big, but let's be optimists here and say that there's a big opportunity here to help a lot of businesses. What are the possible bottlenecks we can we can come up against? We just talked about the operational ones, which we solved with the uh, automated and digital experience for applicants. Next, of course, is just running out of money, which would be a you know a damn shame to miss the opportunity on that basis. So. Around the summertime, we started to poke around and see what kind of off-balance sheet funding solutions we might be able to find. Off-balance sheet because we wanted them to scale and go as big as the opportunity might be and not require us to put up capital in the first loss position or have to raise capital in any form. You know, truly off-balance sheet, just you know, get comfortable with our platform and our underwriting and what we're doing here and be our partner and buy the loans and we'll make the vast majority of our compensation or economics on the back end only if the pool of loans performs, which is how any of these things are usually designed. Before you continue, Dave, do you mind breaking down what off-balance sheet versus balance sheet lending is just at a high level for for the listeners? Like, What do you mean by really looking at this from an off-balance sheet opportunity? Yeah. So on-balance sheet means you know your company or your entity, however you're organized, is the one funding the receivables. Mm-hmm. And it might also borrow money to fund those receivables. But ultimately, the holder of the loan is your entity. And in virtually all cases, in that scenario, that entity needs to put up some of its own money. So you need to either raise equity or have, you know, have the good fortune of having money in that entity to begin originating those receivables. The entity that Merchant Growth typically uses to fund its loan portfolio is Merchant Opportunities Fund. We get the equity capital for that from a group of investors. And it also has a facility with a few Canadian banks that augments that a little bit. So that's a nice structure. And it's served us well to date. But 
you know, if we flood the platform with hundreds of millions of dollars in new origination in the span of a month or two, that structure is not ready to scale to that opportunity. Uh, it would require raising a lot more equity. It would require upsizing those bank facilities at a pace that is, you know, really difficult to do. Things just take time. And so we wanted to bring in a new structure altogether, a big institution with basically unlimited capital that understood the opportunity and would just buy the loans as we made them and didn't wouldn't require us to put up mm-hmm. any what's called first loss capital. So money that would go at risk in front of their money, the way that, you know, bank facilities do when they're on balance sheet. So hopefully that helps. And I probably yeah, still yeah. went a little bit too lingoy on that. But yeah, so we started looking for groups and one thing I should mention is we, we had this debate about whether or not to hire an investment bank to help us find this off-balance sheet facility because mm-hmm. we had initiated a few conversations on our own without using an investment bank. Investment bankers, you know, one of the big things they do is help companies in various industries raise capital in a variety of different forms. This is capital in a certain form, which is called off-balance sheet or forward flow. And there's investment bankers that's you know specialize in our industry, and so. You know, in many cases, you'd use an investment bank, but obviously, that's not a free service. You end up paying them success fee and perhaps some ongoing trailers and stuff, depending on how you negotiate your engagement. And so, given that we had a few conversations already going, we were kind of thinking, well, maybe we can just kind of get this done with the groups we have uh, at the table already. But time was passing by, and we weren't getting things moving along as fast as I would like. And the thing with the CBIF refinance opportunity is it's on a timeline. Deadline. Yeah. And so at some point, we got nervous enough to just say, look, we need to pay, almost think of it as an insurance payment, whether or not they, they really help, we need to get them going and get them bringing other parties to the table and seeing if they can bring competitive tension to this process so that groups start to speed up how they work on this. And in the end, boy, am I glad that we hired that investment bank. Like, Not only did they get things moving a lot faster, they brought new groups to the table that absolutely did an incredible job at proposing on this structure. We ended up going with a group that we otherwise wouldn't have been in contact with that, you know, brought in our, in our view, the best deal to the table. So, you know, extremely happy that we did that. So to the extent there's any kernel of uh, advice for entrepreneurs out there, investment bankers, good ones at the right time will absolutely more than earn their fees and the value that they deliver. And that was certainly the case with Raymond James and Sean Martin, who we have a podcast episode coming out next season with. So yeah, tune into that one when it comes out. It's been a really interesting year, I think, because like you mentioned at the front end of our episode, I'm, I'm so zoned in on the tablet side of the business and kind of with a tunnel vision, but still seeing what has happened on the merchant growth side and everything that was going with funding was actually really cool to see this year. And what we ended up achieving in terms of like being prepared for it, this opportunity can be as big as it wants. And I feel like we're ready as a company to serve this. So it's kind of really cool to see that from the tech side, from the funding standpoint, now we, it makes me think on the tablet side, you know, we've built the tech to MVP. We're now going to build it to a much more sophisticated thing. But also as that scales up, there are the same kind of challenges that are going to come up, right? The business on tablet side is very volume focused as opposed to the traditional lending side, right? You, you need to fund a volume of deals much larger than your typical lending business for those sort of economies of scale and profitability and stuff like that. So seeing how it was ramped up on the MG side is really exciting to see because then that could be applied hopefully towards Tabit as we grow that. So yeah, all that to say, exciting to see what happened in 2023. Looking forward to 2024 and what we're building still. I think you made a great point, which is, you know, when you're forced to think in a bigger scale than, 
you're forced to rethink how your whole machine works, right? And you know, I think like the thesis behind launching Tabit and launching it within merchant growth and leveraging merchant growth was really about the adjudication strength and the history of lending to small businesses. I think it's fortunate that in the early stages, you know, a lot of the other technological infrastructure of merchant growth is relevant and can serve Tabit V1 sort of thing. Hmm. But I think we're starting to recognize that as we think about Tabit in a bigger scale, there's some rethinking of the machine we're going to have to do, Yeah, you know, as part of that, which it's more work, but it's also exciting because like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, it's difficult things are often the ones most worthwhile. And as we kind of build that out, it's going to be something really powerful. So yeah, I really look forward to next year and what we're going to build together, Eli. Yeah, I'm excited for it. And I think this year, you know, since we're doing a year in review, one of the exciting things on the, on the B2B buy not pay later space was seeing companies like Affirm, right? Another one of the people that we had on our podcast, Wayne Palman, that was at Paybright at Affirm now as their CRO. He said, we follow closely what they're doing. And they actually launched a type of B2B buy not pay later with Amazon of all companies, right? And so that really shows the scale of the interest within the B2B BNPL. And so those kind of things are really exciting in our space. In addition, there's companies that are doing it in multiple different ways, right? Some are doing it as in traditional net terms. They're partnering with credit insurance companies and doing it more of a, like the factoring way and really digitizing that. And there's others like us that remain focused on the smallest side, right? The smaller transaction, but with an installment repayment as opposed to net terms, really focusing on serving the, the smallest businesses as opposed to the mid-market and large businesses who are traditionally get net terms. So you're starting to see like a wide scale of companies within what we consider B2B buy now, pay later. And so I think that'll keep evolving over the next year or so. So yeah, all that to say, exciting year ahead. A lot to look forward to next year. Super excited about that. And for this year, looking back on our podcast as a whole, cool to see how many episodes we're at now. 25-ish and still building. We've had a lot of really interesting guests on this year that we've learned a ton from. So yeah, looking forward to having a lot more guests on next year and thanking obviously the listeners that we've had over the last year that's been growing. And you know, we run into people that say, hey, I'm listening to your podcast and that's always cool to see. So thanks to everyone for listening. Yeah, grateful that we get to do this and wishing everybody the happiest of holidays. So until next year, this was Fentrepreneur. Venture-